Well, last week, some of you may recall, we began with Webster's first definition of the adjectival use of the word divine. We saw that Webster's defines it as of the very best kind. That said, when it comes to purchasing some things of the very best kind, unfortunately, it seems as though in some respects they all seem to deteriorate. As the old saying goes, on some level, they don't make them like they used to. Some of you perhaps can even think of some of those items that are like that. Nonetheless, even if this is not the case, time will eventually have its way. Even that brand new 4K TV that you purchase for that divine picture quality will one day lose its luster. Moreover, you'll be forced to look for the next best kind. What is that, 5K? I don't know. (laughs) We mentioned this last week. But what about even the majesty of the Grand Canyon? And even if you've never been to the Grand Canyon, there's something in nature that you've experienced that was just breathtaking. So divine. I mentioned to you uh, several months ago, I had a chance again to see those sheer turquoise waters of the Pacific Ocean. So beautiful, so glorious, so divine. In that moment, whatever it is for you, it's as if time stops. The only thing that matters is this picturesque, vast, beautiful landscape if we stay with the Grand Canyon. Having said that, though, in a few hours, you'll leave. And when you leave, oh yes, there'll be some wonderful pictures for you to share on social media. Please do that for me. I love seeing pictures of nature. Although, even though you have pictures... Vivid pictures to remember an experience that, at least on some level, is divine. It fades away. What once was like an exquisite, polished diamond is now becoming cloudy as the memory starts to fade away. Now, now maybe, of course, you can return and reignite that experience. I certainly would love to go back to the Grand Canyon before I go home to be with the Lord. Nevertheless, such experience will always leave us searching to rekindle that fire, if you will, that divine experience, so to speak. It's it's in the natural realm. It just doesn't last. That said, what about the spiritual? Last week, we saw an ultimate example of the divine. And if you recall, the second definition given by Webster's for the word divine is of God or being like God. And we saw this divine example of salvation. In Jesus Christ alone, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Today, in Ephesians 2, verse 10, this one verse, we'll see another example of an ultimate, divine, ongoing experience, you might say. Not salvation, but sanctification. Sanctification. You see, what God began in You and me, that is, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that will come to completion. What's more, the quality of that will never deteriorate. It will never lose its radiance. As a matter of fact, 
We're all en route, those of us that are in Christ, to a brilliance like no other, that which Scripture calls glorification. As we saw in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, mankind is as dark, cloudy, and murky as it gets. But God, according to the kind intention of his will, according to his grace, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen. That said, though, all of us understand that we still wrestle with the flesh. A a flesh that still grips and entangles us at times. A flesh that leaves us in need of daily cleansing. Daily cleansing that we would call progressive sanctification. That is, that we are being set apart daily. That we are growing in holiness. This is what we've been called to do in light of such divine salvation. That said, how does this work? What role do we play? What role does God play? These questions in and of themselves are in all reality, somewhat difficult for our simple human minds to grasp. Nonetheless, Scripture, with simplicity and clarity, provides answers to this question. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 10, that simplicity and clarity is on display with one simple divine truth God is sovereign in sanctification now last week we saw the theme that God is sovereign in salvation this week we'll see the theme that God is sovereign in sanctification in the same way that we saw tremendous benefit Concerning the sovereignty of God and salvation, we'll see tremendous benefit in a similar manner concerning what it means pertaining to the sovereignty of God in matters of sanctification. This morning, I want us to answer one question that will help us grasp and and take in and apply these benefits. Now, one question is, what makes this sanctification so divine? So, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. As you're turning there, if you would, stand with me, please. For the reading of God's Word, the title of today's message is Sanctification Divine. I will read verses 8 through 10 for the surrounding context, understanding that verse 10 is our only focus here for today. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to look at three works of God in answering this question, what makes sanctification divine? And our first one here this morning is number one, Divine creation, divine creation, if you're taking notes. Look with me at the first part of verse 10. I'll read it again. Paul says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ 
Jesus. Right away, there's two significant points that I don't want us to miss here. One on the surface is, is difficult to ascertain because we can't see it in our English translations, but it is critical for us to understand in the original language, the first word of verse 10 is actually the pronoun his. So with this word order, there's, there's clearly an emphasis upon Christ's work, his work, apart from man. That's the first simple truth that we need to see. Secondly, we can see from the context that this word for, this simple little conjunction, for, it points back actually to verse 8 and the phrase, have been saved. So, here along with the emphasis of Christ's work, the verse plainly also relates to the preceding context of salvation as well. Now, having said that, in dealing with just these two initial points, the sovereignty of God begins to become increasingly clear concerning this matter of sanctification and also salvation. Understanding that verse 10 is somewhat connected to verses 8 and 9. Be that as it may, let's keep moving forward and deal with this word workmanship. In all of the New Testament, it's only used one other time by the Apostle Paul himself again. Make a note, you can reference it later. Listen to its use in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, considering this word, workmanship. Paul says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. That whole phrase, through what has been made, is the same word, workmanship. So that they are without excuse. So what are we dealing with here? We can see even just in these two uses, along with the context of Ephesians 2, that we're dealing with a creation of God that is never existed before. Now, as for this creation, just a simple reading of Ephesians 2.10 demonstrates this. Nonetheless, Scripture makes this abundantly clear throughout. There's many passages that we could look at to see this, but I want to give you just two. You're very familiar with the beginning of our context in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And we saw in that passage and our message focused on radical depravity, the extent of radical depravity, that it applies to all apart from Christ. In chapter 5 of Romans, it's about as crystal as it gets. Sin and death has spread to all of mankind through our forefather, Adam. And because of that, all of mankind, rightfully so, apart from Christ, is under the condemnation of God. Yet, by way of his divine creation, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come for many of you here today. Amen? A new creation. What was once like a damaged and broken pot of clay is now a divine workmanship created in the potter's hands. That's you, brother or sister in Christ. You are a one of a kind, a unique work of art. 
Paul will describe it in Romans chapter 9 as the, uh, a vessel of mercy fashioned for honorable use. A divine creation. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 10, he describes this workmanship as followed when he says, And have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Look again even at our verse. He goes on to say that we were created in Christ Jesus. In chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, and simple enough to turn there, being as though it's in Ephesians. So turn over there. Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24. Listen to how Paul describes this divine creation here. He says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of the seat, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. again how glorious how divine a creation you are never existed before moreover as we just read when it comes to your former manner of life utterly worthless yet now priceless unmatched, without parallel. A workmanship created in Christ Jesus. I could describe it as such. If you were once like a dead and buried idea on a painted canvas, you're now made alive in Christ through his workmanship like a Mona Lisa. Never to be replicated. Never to be duplicated. Forever to be preeminent. This is who you are, beloved. Those of you that are in Christ. Now, I have to take a pause, and I'll take another pause here in a moment. Quick word of caution. Does this have anything to do with your previous value, your previous intellect, your previous ability? May it never be. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. As for this verse, Paul says, you were created in Christ Jesus. Here, once again, he's referencing this grand theme that he has throughout this letter as a whole. We referenced this in the beginning of our introductory message on this epistle. That you will see these two words, in Christ, or in Jesus, or in Him, all throughout this letter all the while continually referring to the fact that it's through his agency, that is, his work, apart from anything to do with man. Now, perhaps in some respects, the beginning of this verse sounds more like salvation rather than sanctification. Maybe you're thinking, I should have included this part of the message in last week's message in verses 8 and 9 concerning divine sanctification. That argument could surely be made. We already stated that you can't disconnect verse 10 from verses 8 and 9. Nonetheless, let me explain to you how this divine creation helps us 
informs our view of sanctification just as much. It's all about what a masterpiece of a divine creation looks like. Beloved, we saw this in our exposition all throughout 1 John. Children of God look differently than children of the devil. If you are like a Mona Lisa, so to speak, never before existed, you will look like a one of a kind. You won't look like a cheap, counterfeit knockoff. You will love the things of God. You will hate the things of the world. You will walk in the light. What's more, you'll live a life of worship. You'll live a life of worship. You were dead, now alive, a divine creation, his workmanship. In response to that, how will you live this life of worship? Let me bring it back to the Grand Canyon. At that moment, standing on the edge, Pacific Ocean, whatever it may be, at that moment, whatever idols entangled you were far away from your mind. You were simply enamored with God's divine creation. For some of you, there were no video games to distract you. For others, there was no thought of work. There was no unhealthy obsession of the things of this world. And that obviously doesn't mean that some of the things of this world are not good. But even those things can become idols. You were solely in all worshiping God through this divine experience of His creation. With that said, I want you to listen to a very well-known passage of Scripture as you consider how do I live this life of worship in light of the divine creation of God in your life. Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 and 5 read, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God. Beloved, in light of this unbelievable work of divine creation, By His grace, would you strive with all your heart to worship Him and Him alone? To do as John would say in the end of his epistle, chapter 5, to guard yourself from idols. He is a jealous God who rightfully deserves and rightfully desires our allegiance. Amen? This is what a life of worship looks like. A life that we would live in response to the workmanship and the creation of God in you. A life that will look different than the world. How do we do this? Well, the answer lies in a second work of God in this verse alone. This second work that, in all honesty, I I really believe is the fuel for our engines, if you will. 
How do we live this life of worship? How do we pursue this God in whom we love? How do we look different than the world? This is the fuel, friends. And that's number two, the divine work. The divine work. Look at the second half of verse 10. We were created in Christ Jesus for what? My words. For what? For good works which God prepared beforehand. Now, we just saw the sovereignty of God and divine creation in our first work of God. Perhaps, on some level, some are still unsure about how the sovereignty of God plays in to sanctification. If that's the case, this work seals the deal. And once again, provides you the fuel and the fire in which I know you desire as a born-again believer in Christ. What's the theme behind this one verse again? God is sovereign in sanctification. Now, I mentioned I need to hit another pause button. This is it. Just because And listen closely, my friends. This is so important that you understand what I'm about to say. Just because God is sovereign in sanctification does not mean in any way that we sit back and say, you've heard me say this, I despise this phrase, let go and let God That we sit back and we do not run hard for Jesus Christ with all of our conviction and all of our courage and all of our confidence. This idea that one would do so because God is sovereign is actually referred to sometimes as the idea as called quietism. My dear friends, Quietism is a contradiction at its core to the word of God and must be rejected. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 says that we are to strive for holiness, that without which no one will see the Lord. In this same letter, chapter 4. Paul says to take off the old man and to put on the new. Amen? I know for the dear saints that are in this room, you desire to do this daily by the grace of God. Quietism, let me repeat it, must be rejected. Nevertheless, in this one Simple verse. There is a lightning bolt of force and energy that will enable you to strive for holiness. A power that will enable you to pursue holiness on a whole nother level. To run hard for Christ. To worship Him consistently. When you feel like there's nothing left in the tank. Look again at the plain, simple reading of this verse. If I were to paraphrase it, I would say, Your good works were prepared beforehand by God. The plain, simple reading of that text. This word prepared beforehand. It's only used one other time again by the Apostle Paul. He uses it in, go figure, a profoundly unbelievable passage concerning the sovereignty of God. Listen to its use in Romans chapter 9 Verse 23, I'll read verse 22 and 23 for context. Some of you know 
the context of this overall passage in Romans chapter 9, but this is the account of the Apostle Paul arguing against, defending his case against the detractors concerning the sovereignty of God. Romans 9, verses 22 and 23 states, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even when it comes to sovereign election in chapter 1, verse 4, what did we see there? Why did God choose you? But that you would be holy and blameless. So once again, the clarity of this verse, Ephesians 2.10 is, Second to none. Concerning this divine work, a sovereign work, prepared beforehand, apart from man. Nonetheless, this is so critical, beloved. This is so vital for us and and the force and energy that we need on a daily basis to pursue Christ. Let's build this out even a little further before we get to the fruit. I want to give you several other examples of this divine work of sanctification. Stay with me. Once again, this is the fuel for our engine. This is the fire that leads us in the dead of night like the children of Israel as they were being chased by Pharaoh. Scripture interprets Scripture. Let's look at that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 and 31. Listen closely to the word of God. But by his doing... You are in Christ Jesus. His doing. You are in Christ Jesus. Who became to us wisdom from God. And righteousness. And sanctification. And redemption. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So in this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, a pinnacle passage concerning the sovereignty of God and salvation. What do we see? But sanctification included with redemption. Or in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Listen closely here. Paul says again, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Do you see it? In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we saw this sovereign gift of God in grace and faith for his people. And then here, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, what is sandwiched in between God's choice of you and faith? Two gifts but sanctification by the Spirit. Let me give you two others. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. 
I won't read verses 9 through 10. Many of you are familiar with that passage as the Apostle Paul speaks about those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. He has a a, a long list, those that are labeled as drunkards, swindlers, thieves, revilers, homosexuals. It's all a part of the word of God right there. He says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But listen to what he says in verse 11. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So even in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, just concerning the unbelievable act of justification, the judicial act of God declaring you innocent, no Orthodox Christian would ever attribute any work of man to justification by grace and faith alone. Men were burned to the stake as they held to this truth of Scripture, orthodox, biblical Christianity. And yet here, Paul connects justification with sanctification. One more. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 reads... According to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. To obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So, in this final example, and we could go many other areas. But in this one final example of scripture interpreting scripture concerning the sovereignty of God in this divine work of sanctification. We see here in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 2 scripture connecting the intimate act of God's divine foreknowledge or better understood for love of his elect with sanctification. Now, given Ephesians 2.10, or Scripture as a whole, a clear testimony of Scripture, this is about as open and shut a case as it gets. God is sovereign in sanctification. That said, why again coming back to what you need and what I need is this the spark that fuels our fire for Christ? That's the question. Let me explain it this way. If quietism must be rejected, in the same vein, moralism is just as dangerous. As much as every Christian should be committed to pursuing holiness, we must be keenly aware of our propensity in the flesh. That is a propensity to pursue Christ as if we are the force or the power for holiness, for sanctification, for being set apart. As if in and of ourselves we can accomplish this task. This is extremely damaging in many respects. I use the term moralism because in some respects it it applies to believers, but even outside of believers, this idea that 
in and of myself. I am a good person. I have the intellect. I have the ability to strive to pursue Christ. With that said, listen to the words of the Canaanite woman from Matthew chapter 15 for a point of application. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. By all means, God's word calls us to put off the old and to put on the new. And to work with all our heart to do so. Nevertheless, never forget your utter need and dependence for the master's provision. What's more, live in a way with confidence that knows that God prepared beforehand the works that you will walk in. That's the fire we need. That's the force we need. That's the fuel we need. Why is that the case? It's because it's not in and of ourselves. It's not our energy that produces this holiness. I love Philippians chapter 2. As you know, many of you that have been here, we went through that book. Verses 12 and 13 is the perfect picture of man's responsibility in God's sovereignty. Philippians chapter 2 verse 12 says that you are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We reject quietism, amen? Nevertheless, what else does Paul say in verse 13? He says that it is God who is at work in you, both to work and to will for his good pleasure. That's the energy. Even that word work in Philippians 2.13 is where we get the English word energy from. As a believer, you're guaranteed to produce fruit. And that's our third and final work of God behind this divine sanctification. Sanctification, Number three, divine fruit. Let's briefly deal with the final and only purpose clause of this verse 10. Look again with me. He says, so that we would walk in them. Within this paragraph, Paul has come full circle. In the beginning of verses 1 through 3, and verse 2, concerning this walking, concerning this life that we live, this fruit, this divine fruit. In verse 2, he states, in which you formally walked, formally walked. According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. As children of wrath, we walked according to Satan himself. This is the clear testimony of Scripture. And each and every one of us, as blood-bought, born-again believers in Jesus Christ, fully understand that previous life that we have been delivered from. Amen? God, because of his free choice, made you alive together with Christ. Moreover, he empowered you to walk 
And that word throughout the New Testament, in essence, just pertains to your life. How do you live? He empowered you by the Spirit to walk, to live in the good works that God prepared beforehand. Later on, after completing this primary emphasis upon the doctrine of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3, one through, or chapter 1 through chapter 3, in chapter 4, as he begins his practical exhortation, Look at what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. Still staying focused on our walk and this divine fruit. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So, if his divine creation And his divine work is the fan that flames the fire, so to speak. I'm at a loss for words, but you know where I'm going. When it comes to sanctification, would his inevitable divine fruit cause you to consider how you would walk in a manner worthy of his calling? His divine creation, his divine work, and you. Paul, in his letter to Titus, describes it as such when he says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Friends, As surely as he redeemed you, he will purify you. He will cause you to be zealous for good works. So what does that look like? Maybe for some here today, it's the need to repent of sin that even now grips your heart. For others, it's the putting off of the fear of man as opposed to the traditions of this world or the fears of this world. But because of His divine fruit, you desire to affirm and live a life that says, Scripture alone is my guiding light. Maybe others. It's the putting on of holiness through the reading of his word. The psalmist will say to hide that word in your heart in order that you might not sin against him. Perhaps that's for someone here today. Or for others. And this is where I want to end. When you consider God's divine creation, in all honesty, you look no different than the world. Or when it comes to his divine work and divine fruit, something's lacking. Oh, there may be a resemblance of what looks like moralism. Good person. But I ask you to ask yourself, is there a brokenness 
in my life that causes me to even search for the crumbs at the master's table. To say, I am nothing. Christ is everything. To not have a prideful heart that boasts in your own works, but a heart that realizes as that Canaanite woman realized. Even dogs desire the crumbs from the master's table. This is the brokenness that opens us to the gifts of grace and faith alone. You see, beloved, without a true divine salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, we are hopeless. If that is anyone here this morning, or even under the sound of my voice throughout the live stream, turn from your sin and receive the gift of faith in Jesus Christ Today is the day of salvation divine. Come, oh come, for the first time and walk in the works that were prepared beforehand for his people. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you, O God, for your blessed divine salvation. We thank you for your spirit that you have left us with that empowers us to walk in newness of life to exhibit the reality that we are a divine creation, unique, one of a kind, set apart. To understand the force and the power and the energy that you have prepared these works that we are to walk in and then to go forward and to understand that you have called us to produce fruit. To live a life of holiness unto you, God. In the blessed and holy name of our risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray.